I'm really uh, happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Lisa Krieger. Lisa Krieger covers news from Stanford University, the University of California, and the other Bay Area research facilities for the San Jose Mercury News. Her article, The Cost of Dying, a chronicle of her father's final days, brought an outpouring of responses from readers from around the nation and led to a series on the subject. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Lisa Krieger. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. How we die matters. It matters to us. It matters to our survivors who, long after we're gone, will carry the memories of our final days with them. It's not a subject a lot of people want to think about. It's not a subject a lot of us know much about. But we're really privileged tonight to have some um, great experts here who can give us a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look um, at death and dying, how we can make it a dignified and rich experience, and um, spend our last days, weeks, months, years in comfort. Uh, so anyway, I'm really, really great you're here. Really look forward to hearing a lot of what they have to say. So um, immediately on my left is uh, Shirley Otis Green, who's an expert in palliative care. A big word. A lot of us don't know what that means. She's going to explain that tonight. She's at City of Hope in Duarte, and really look forward to asking her some questions about what she's learned. Dr. Ken Murray is in the middle. A lot of you have probably read his piece that generated such interest. A lot of buzz. I had a lot of doctors emailing your piece to me. Um, Dr. Murray was a professor, uh, professor of family medicine at the University of Southern California. He's now retired and a lovely writer, I must say. Um, and again, we'll look forward to exploring some of what he brought up in his piece. Um, and finally, Judy Sitko is with a group called Coalition for Compassionate Care um, for Californians. It's based in Sacramento. If you're not familiar with the group, check them out. Really important, doing wonderful work in terms of end-of-life planning. How can we improve the end-of-life experience for Californians? Really forward-thinking group, and um, an honor to be with you here today. So, Ken, one of the things that was so remarkable about your piece was it really sort of let us in on a secret, which a lot of us didn't realize, and that is doctors, the people who design and deliver these amazing interventions, opt, opt out themselves. They don't want a lot of this stuff. And I guess my question for you is, what do, what do doctors know that, that we don't know? Well, I, I think it's an issue of experience. Um, for most people, um, in our current day and age, um, we, we don't really experience death uh, on, a, on a regular basis. And it's not part of our normal experience. Um, and back in the 50s when America migrated from farms and um, the agrarian uh, type of environment to the cities, that all changed and we got away from, from that experience. And uh, we also had a change where um, when people died, um, they were laid out in their homes in a casket. And, um, and when in the 50s, uh, the death industry was commercialized, we had uh, funeral homes uh, that developed. Uh, people lost complete contact with that. And one of the interesting phenomenons is that it actually changed the architecture of our homes. So uh, we used to have parlors where people would lay out their, uh, the, the loved one's bodies and, and we would have services there. We don't have parlors in, in our homes anymore. And what uh, architects now have put in homes are living rooms. And those names are not an accident. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. But physicians um, experience um, death uh, I won't necessarily say on a daily basis, but it's a common experience throughout our careers. So we have the opportunity to come to grips with the issue and um, to think about it uh, for ourselves and for our loved ones. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess in a very real way, we understand it's, it's going to be something that we all are going to face. Right. Do doctors see the interventions and recognize their limitations? Uh, Oh, I, I think that's exactly the case. Uh -huh. um, there are limitations. I mean, the, the things that we have available in medicine uh, today, even compared with 10 or 20 years ago, are, are amazing. What 
they are compared with 50 years ago are astonishing. Mm -hmm. um, but there are still limitations. And unfortunately for, for many people, um, what their experience is, is often television and movies uh, where things are uh, exaggerated or um, um, shortened in, in some fashion for dramatic purposes. But people um, get the sense that that's the way it really is. And, um, but, but we, of course, uh, experience in, in reality, and we do know what those limitations are. And so our expectations are probably a little bit different. Interesting. And Judy, your organization helps people with end-of-life issues, probably some education about exactly um, what Ken's describing here. What are two or three of the things that people here need to know when they leave the room tonight about end-of-life planning? Um, again, to address the huge gap that Dr. Murray's identified. Right. Um, but what we call advanced care planning is a process of planning in advance for what you want. And it is a process that happens over time. And along the way, there's certain documents that you can complete to document what your wishes are. And it's very important to talk to your loved ones and your doctor about those wishes. We recommend that anyone who's 18 years or older have an advanced directive. And that advanced directive, in it you can name who you want to speak for you if you're unable to speak for yourself. And that's the most important thing. And most people can identify who it is that they trust to make the decisions that they would make for themselves. You can also put in there if you have treatment preferences, if you have values or, or information about you to help your loved one make the decisions real time should that happen. Uh, and again, it's called an advanced directive. There's no single form. Anything will do. It just needs to meet certain witnessing requirements or be notarized. As you get a little bit, if you get diagnosed with a medical, a chronic condition, a medical condition, and it starts to get advanced and you have, you're seriously ill, at that point you want to talk to your doctor about whether you should have a pulsed form the physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment. That's a standardized form, it's bright pink, it is a physician's order. And that way, when emergency responders get called to your house, they can honor a physician's order. They, they can't open up an advanced directive and figure out what that says, but they know how to respond to a physician's order. And that addresses things like resuscitation, do you want CPR, do you want a feeding tube, would you be willing to be on a ventilator? Would you be willing to go to ICU? And again, as your condition changes, as your life changes, your wishes may change about who you want to speak for you, what treatments you're willing to put up with. And so this is really a process that you can go home and start now talking to your loved ones, talking to your doctors, and then when you're clear on what you want, put it down in writing so that others know. Any advice you offer in terms of who to select as your agent? The, the um, drama queen daughter, the husband well, in the Air Force? And, uh, yeah, some people, most people choose a family member. It does not have to be a family member. It can be a friend. Um, you need to realize that your family members and those who care about you, when you're seriously ill, they will be having their own experience of that illness. So you want to think, will they be able to carry out my wishes and what I want? That's their job, is to stand in your shoes. It's not to second guess, it's not to make up their own decision, it's to stand in your shoes. But that can be very hard to do emotionally. Um, That's very so, helpful. Thank you. And I'll, just so you know, yeah. also, you can put on there, if there's someone you don't want to speak for you, if uh -huh. <laughs> you may have yeah. a family member who you know, has different values, you can make that clear. Um, uh -huh. You can, you know, if, uh, sometimes it's hard to yeah. name one person, but it's really helpful to healthcare providers to have one person. If you want them to speak and to have a family decision, that's great, but it really helps the healthcare team if they know who to turn to to make the decision. Thank you, great, very helpful. And we can, if there are questions, I'm sure Judy can help answer. Um, Shirley, palliative care is a hot, topic now, and I think a lot of people don't fully understand what it is. You might associate it with hospice, perhaps, um, but talk about what palliative care, how it differs from hospice, and really how it can improve the end-of-life experience for people. Absolutely. Again, it's my pleasure to be here, and thank you all for coming. 
we know that when we think about this um, aspect of our lives, at some point we're going to be facing an end-of-life situation for ourselves and for our loved ones. And the healthcare system has only recently been able to, you know, kind of create uh, mechanisms for us to do this. And hospice only came about recently. It's really since the 1970s that we've had the, the uh, Medicare benefit hospice um, that allows us to have certain kinds of care in a way that's um, paid for differently than our normal insurance does. One of the challenges with hospice is that it is for people who have a condition that is likely to lead to their death within a relatively short period of time, six months or less, and that can be identified and recognized by physicians in advance. And the problem has been that we're not very good at knowing when that's going to be. And so over these last few decades, there's been an enormous number of people that have not benefited from the, the intent of that legislation. Uh, many people who would have had an illness but did not know about hospice or did not know in time, and so maybe very late referrals. And palliative care comes about, I think, because of a reaction to that, that said, we really want people to be able to have integrated care. We shouldn't have to make a decision about curative care or hospice. We should be able to have um, quality care that looks at our needs in a more comprehensive way from the time of diagnosis. So palliative care is intended to do just that, to offer people an opportunity to have care that addresses their quality of life concerns physically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually from the moment of a serious illness all the way through to whatever choice that they would make at the end of their life. And this is something people can ask for then? Absolutely. Then, okay. Absolutely. How widely available is it at this Well, point? that's a great question. Okay. Um, we know that it's a growing trend. Um, mm -hmm. The Center for Advancement of Palliative Care, um, we call it CAPSI, is a wonderful program that tracks these kinds of statistics. And they're saying that over 50% now of all hospitals that are, I think, 300 beds or over, have mm -hmm. uh, palliative care programs. Mm -hmm. But that means that you might be in a situation where uh, a hospital does not have that. We know, though, that as we advocate for that and we ask for that, um, the hospitals are going to be more inclined to identify that service and make it a priority and make it more available. We also think mm -hmm. that the health care reform, um, it, we don't know exactly how that's going to play itself out in these next few months, but we do know that there's um, uh, an intent in the health care reform uh, package to expand the services of palliative care and to make those more commonly available. Interesting. Good. Thank you. Um, which leads to a question, related question for Dr. Murray. You have a sick elder, sick spouse, God forbid a sick child. Um, there are all kinds of options out there in terms of palliative care or aggressive intervention or hospice. What questions do loved ones need to ask their doctors when things are going south really quickly? Well, to be I, able to make the type of um, decisions that need to be made. Yeah. I, I think I, mm -hmm. I want to preface it by saying that I don't think there's ever a substitution for um, a scenario where the family that you describe um, has a, a primary care physician who has a, a long-standing relationship uh, with the patient. Um, there, there's no substitute for that. Uh, because um, trust is a critical part of this equation in being able to uh, understand what the patient wants and understand that the uh, physician who's involved uh, wants to support that patient and that, and that there is a, a longitudinal uh, trust involved in, in actual performance. Um, that having been said, um, you, you oftentimes would, would want to say, well, what would you do? What right. would you do if it was your mother? Um, but I, I will say that physicians are leery of asking, answering those questions, uh, uh, particularly if you don't have this relationship. Because it's really easy to um, be in a position where you end up imposing your value system onto the patient by virtue of your answers. And uh, that's something that we don't really want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that's the genesis of not wanting to answer that question, generally mm -hmm. speaking. Um, so that, if you have a relationship, you're more likely to be able to get an answer that's meaningful to that question. Um, but I think clear-cut questions and answers are really critically important here. So is the person likely to survive this illness, right. um, 
is really important because I, I've seen situations where people uh, get referred into hospice and no one understood that there was a terminal condition. Uh, I, that's just Shocking. astonishing mm -hmm. uh, that that could be the case. So, um, so I think asking pointed questions and getting them answered and being persistent until you get them answered is, is the pathway. Okay. That I would. That I would. And advocate. people should feel comfortable with their doctors asking those questions until yeah. they get answers. That's yeah. great. A challenge I had with my dad's last days was getting a view from thirty thousand feet up, asking where are we headed here with all this. Because I'm sure those of you who've had this experience, one thing leads to another. The infectious disease team comes in. The oncologists come in. They're not talking to each other. No one's taking the long view, and. Um, I think it would help people to know that this is some information where decades of a doctor's experience can help out here and should feel comfortable. Yeah, right? because you you know the the doctor is the one who's been down this road exactly, exactly. you know a hundred times mm -hmm. and is in a position to say I, I can see where this is going and we need to start to talk about the inappropriateness of what we're doing here in terms of what he or she wanted. Uh -huh. I mean, I mean, so I mean, should the doctor bring it up or should the family Well, the doctor bring should it bring it up. Okay. But, um, uh -huh. but if that's not happening, mm -hmm. uh, the patient or the family needs to bring it up. Mm -hmm. The doctor, it's their job to bring it up, okay. but, but it unfortunately doesn't always happen. Right. right. Lisa, I think yes. it's also helpful sometimes to, mm -hmm. if the doctor's not the right person, I mean, the doctor certainly has all the clinical medical knowledge, but sometimes it's helpful to bring in a social worker such as Shirley or a chaplain who can help with looking at that bigger picture and the family dynamics and the quality of life because it is so much more than just the clinical condition in this test or that diagnosis. Interesting. Yeah, speak to that, Shirley, too. Have you been brought in in cases like... Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. Talk when, about how that plays out. When you then, were suggesting, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of we wanted, you know, amongst ourselves here, we wanted to be sure to give you some practical strategies. And one of the most um, useful uh, things I think a family member can request is a family meeting. Um, so if you have a loved one and you're in a hospital situation, being able to ask, would this be a good time for us to have a family meeting, I think is a really uh, wonderful thing. And what we mean by a family meeting is it's an opportunity for you to come in with the people that matter most, you know, the, who, the people that are going to be in that advanced directive, the folks that are going to be making these decisions, hopefully with the patient, but with, again, the right family members. If somebody's not available, being able to say, can we put a Skype call? Can we, you know, can we do something clever and creative and make sure that all the people are, are involved from a personal side? And from the physician side, what we ask people to do in a family meeting is for the physician to bring in the social worker, the psychologist, the chaplain, the nurse, to be able, again, on their side to have the right people as well. So it's a chance to clear the air, to be sure everyone's on the same page, and to ask some of these really difficult questions, as you say, about um, where is this likely to go? What are the side effects of this? What are there other treatment options that we might not have considered? And being sure that everyone gets a chance to have, you know, to not leave at the end until you really understand um, what it is that, that you need to know. Right. Interesting. Because I know family rifts can go on for decades afterwards. I've heard from people that, you know, to this day, um, there's disagreement about how end-of-life care was provided. And I'm sure for the physician it's tough if you feel that there are dissenting family members out there. Uh, um, it's, the wor it's the worst situation that you run into, huh. is, is where it, when you have dissension and, and the patient's not able to provide any guidance. Um, and, uh, you know, people are screaming and yelling and, mm -hmm. and you're trying to uh, get rational decisions right. about how to go, and it's, it, it's terribly difficult. Which gets to a point Judy made, which was good, and that is to have consensus in the family through the advanced directive. Are there, do you recommend families getting together at, I don't know, the Thanksgiving table or family meetings? Just so everyone, because we all hear differently. And how do you make it comfortable so that everyone gets the same message so we're not having the crises that you're describing? My experience is the worst time to figure this stuff out is when you're in a crisis. Um, right. And a lot of what you do can help prevent that, right? 
Yeah, in a crisis, you're already very stressed out. So um, there's lots of different ways to do it. Some people do it around Thanksgiving, um, maybe doing small conversations over time. A great conversation starter is if you saw an episode on TV that maybe um, somebody had a heart attack or they died or they were resuscitated. What did you think about that? If you have another family member, you know, um, a grandparent who dies or an uncle, what did you think about how they died? Is that how you would, how you would like to go or what would you like to be different? Those are often good ways to get the conversation started. Mm -hmm. And you don't need a laundry list exactly of like, yes, yes to ventilator, no to feeding tube, all of that. Do you or is that helpful? Um, uh, generally, think about those mm -hmm. things far in advance are not that helpful because how you're actually going to die and the medical decisions that will need to be made, you can't anticipate in advance. Most people have very complicated conditions, and so thinking about it in the abstract is not helpful. But thinking about what makes life worth living for you, is it really important that you're able to talk to your loved ones? Um, what's your quality of life? Is it being able to eat ice cream? Is it being able to golf? You know, what is it that is most important to you and defines you as a person? Are you the person where you have strong views that you want to um, you believe that life should be preserved at all costs. We want to know that. The healthcare system, it doesn't matter what your choices are, it's important that you know that you decide what those are and put them in writing so they can be honored. Because we have a very wide range of views within our society, but our healthcare system goes to default. Um, mm -hmm. And that is to keep trying to sustain life at the cost of looking at the quality of life. And that's a good default, but for a lot of people there's a point in that disease progress where we, most of us don't want to keep um, trying to uh, cure and, and prolong life. We want to be able to go home. We want to be surrounded by our loved ones. And that's what's important for the providers to know is where is that time? Where is that point um, in transition for you? And your loved ones, it will help them to know in advance because again, it's a very stressful time for them and if the more they hear from you about your wishes, the more they can be at peace that they're making the right decision. It's yeah. very helpful, thank you. The issue of futile care is an interesting one though, and I actually I'll ask uh, Ken here, because Ken's fu I mean, treatment's futile in hindsight often. You know, you, by definition, end of life care is when treatment has failed. And then I'm sure there are those that say yes, but there are those successes, and we call them successes. And how do we know when something's worth fighting for? You know, the miracle that someone might pull through. Oh, you can't. Yeah. Um, oh. And, this, and this, is, this is where experience comes into the equation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it drives uh, physicians nuts uh, every time we get into the, the miraculous stories. Um, and it kind of ties into the same thing uh, when we, we decide a person has a terminal condition. People say, how much time do I have? Right. We don't know. Really? Uh, because there, are, there yeah. are a million factors that enter into the equation. But of course, a person wants to do planning. Right. That's why they're asking the question. And uh, so we usually get backed up into a corner and uh, we give an answer and it's always wrong. Um, if it's too long, it's too short, uh, it, it's always wrong. So um, it, it becomes difficult to, um, you know, winnow your way through how it's going to, how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. Are there specific interventions that don't make sense? I mean, I know there's debate about feeding tubes and dementia. Um, CPR, yeah. clearly if you're younger, it makes more sense than if you're older. Elaborate on that if you can. Well, for terminal people, CPR is, is nuts. Hmm. It's a waste of time. Um, and uh, there was an excellent article that looked at um, people who had terminal conditions, who got um, advanced directives, they did not want CPR. And when their heart stopped, they got it anyway. In this particular wow. study, they looked at uh, about 70 patients. And in fact, um, eight people, their, their hearts were started again, 11%. Um, but in 48 hours, they were all dead. And none of them woke up. None of them had any meaningful time given. 
Uh, that is not what happens in those situations. Um, so was there any quality of life gained by that intervention? No, there wasn't. Uh, to me, that's, that's futile care. Uh, nothing is being gained there. And uh, we have a number of things that, that uh, can be in that kind of category. There's literally a laundry list of, of uh, situations of people being severely ill, and we can do things, um, but we're not buying any kind of quality time for them uh, in any kind of meaningful way, in my mind. Um, but, but that's, of course, for the patient to decide. Um, I, I think what, what is the tragedy is that they don't have good information to make the decision with as to what's futile and what's not, what's reasonable and what's not. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And they're, we're back to the television. Right, exactly. And perhaps palliative care experts can help there. I mean, can we look to them, particularly for people who have chronic progressive diseases? Absolutely. Yeah. The hope would be that we would be able to um, think of care that can be more tailored. I love your phrase, Judy, in terms of there's a default. And, you know, again, if I were to say, I've got this great pair of shoes, I think you'd really like it. You know, the problem is your size foot and mine might be kind of different. And what we might plan to do with the activity the next day is going to be different. And whether this will serve you well is going to be different. So as you just suggested, being able to have care that can be tailored and more person-centered so that you might choose to have this under this set of circumstances. And I might say I would really choose not to. Um, and having the healthcare team know that. So as you've heard, we've got a fabulous physician here, but he can't read minds. And so he doesn't know, as any physician doesn't know, what kind of care that particular person's going to be, um, you know, feel is, is the best in their circumstance or their situation. What the social worker brings to the table is hopefully a chance to have a dialogue with the family, with the patient, to be sure that you don't have regret. At the end of the day, that's one of the things that all of us can probably agree we don't want. You know, so we want to be able to make a choice that we can feel the best about. And as you say, whether it's too long or too short in terms of the different things that we do, in either case, we don't want you to have the regret that we didn't try something right. that you felt you know, we wanted to, or the regret that we did something that you know that you've, you know, in retrospect again, that you look back on and you say, mom never would have wanted that. You know, so the hope is to be able to have the conversation that allows people to walk out of the hospital, whether it was successful or not, with feeling that they made the best choice they could at the time with the limited information that you have, because we don't have a crystal ball. None of us know what the outcome is going to be. We just know probabilities that people who've had experience have a better sense of what we might see, what we've seen in the past, but we still don't know what is going to happen in this particular situation. Interesting. And do you need to be in the hospital to take advantage of palliative care? Because it seems as though particularly uh, people with chronic emphysema or heart disease that might be at home. And rushing to the emergency room is a really stressful thing. It is right? a stressful yeah. thing. The hope would be mm -hmm. that we would be able to have good quality care, that it would have well-skilled, well-trained, caring and compassionate physicians who are very competent with a full team approach, again, the nurses, the social workers, the chaplains, with everyone with all this expertise available to people in whatever setting they would have. But we're not quite there yet. Yeah, what do we need to do to that's make right. that so happen? Between yeah. now and then, um, vote, that's something. Um, but mm -hmm. between now and then, um, we do have, again, the ability to ask the questions. And as you suggested earlier, that's certainly, I think, our biggest take-home for all of you now is to encourage you to talk to one another. Again, as Judy was saying, you know, my um, suggestion is don't wait till Thanksgiving. This is what you do tonight on the drive home. You know, whoever you came here <laughs> with, you talk to them about what it is that you'd like and what you've seen. Um, using the, the natural opportunities, the, the opportunities of when the guinea pig dies, to talk to your children about this, how we make decisions about um, end of life for our pets, whether or not we want our pet to be put down, um, comes from a place that says we think about these things and we say that there are limits sometimes to what we can do. Um, so as there are natural things in life that give us some opportunities to have these dialogues and discussion. The outpatient clinic absolutely can do this, um, but not every setting is, is currently set up um, for it to happen gotcha. at this time. Gotcha. And related to that is Pulsed, of course, because this is a, um, a moment in time when intervention is either accepted or not. When the medics, you call 911, the medics come through the door with the, all the equipment. Tell us what Pulsed 
I guess, first of all, where should Pulsed be? And do they have it in their computers? Can they, um, how do you get that message to the medics? So again, in Pulsed a is a standardized yeah. physician order, and one of the um, choices on there is whether you want to be resuscitated. And that's what emergency responders are going to look at. Do they start the CPR process? Um, if you have chosen that you want DNR, mm -hmm. you might also talk to your family about if, if they can tell that your heart has stopped and you're not breathing, you've chosen DNR, and they don't need, they don't they have to call 911. They should not call Okay. Um, so that's our default in a crisis, is to call 911. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so if they, if they do come, um, you want to have it in a place where they're going to look for it, and every local emergency services authority trains their folks a little bit differently. So we'd want to talk here in, in the Los Angeles area, wherever you live, to find out how they're instructed. Usually they're going to look close to the refrigerator or close in the bedroom or around the medicine cabinet. So those are, um, a lot of people don't want to have it posted on their refrigerator and to be reminded that it's there. <laughs> but it is legally binding. Right. Okay. They are yeah. required by law to honor that. Very good. Thank you. Um, and it needs to be signed by the patient or their surrogate can sign it if they don't have capacity. And it's signed by the doctor. So um, often if there's team members that are involved with helping you to complete that form because, again, you want to look at not just the medical condition but um, your other things that influence your choices. But the physician needs to come in and talk to the patient and the decision maker about this is grounded in your current medical condition. The advanced directive is more theoretical and in the future and hypothetical. The pulse is based on your current medical condition. If you needed these treatments today, what would you want? Yeah, helpful. And that's helpful to doctors as well, I'm sure. Yes. And, yes. and it's important to understand mm -hmm. you can change it at any time. Oh. You can okay. change it at any time. Uh so if you're eating a cherry, choke on the seed, you want CPR, but you may not want something two or three weeks from now, you could change it at that point. You can, okay. yeah. That's good to know as well. The um, advanced directives should not be in safe deposit boxes, I've been told, right? <laughs> when you come into the, it's tough to find them, when you come into the emergency room, do you need to have them? Do doctors honor them if you... An yeah. advanced directive, uh, they, recognizing that they are complicated. Well, it, it is complicated, and uh -huh. and, and once again, there is no substitute mm -hmm. for um, a family physician who has longitudinal longitudinal knowledge of the situation mm -hmm. uh, to help interpret. That and you can call directive. your family doctor. People. Yeah. Okay, that's good yeah. to know too. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. That have dads the, in crisis have were the headed ER to the doctor. ER. Yeah, okay. or have the ER doctor call the, the uh -huh. primary care physician. Okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and uh, so you have the orders and the uh, advanced directives. Um, there's mm -hmm. still the physician still can make their own interpretation of what should be done at that point. Okay. So there's, there's opportunity for change. Good, great. It's a, yeah, it's a conversation. Yeah. Uh, um, Let's talk about death panels a little bit, and maybe um, Judy, perhaps, or Shirley can address that. It came up, my understanding was it was just reimbursement for physicians of the ability to talk about end-of-life issues where they'd actually be paid to talk to you. It's not this 15-minute <laughs> in and out. What happened? Is there any prospect of them, um, something like that, once again? Is it part of healthcare reform? I don't think so. Well, yeah. so... When you hear the phrase death panels, um, I think, you know, the, the challenge is we don't, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, so people, you know, kind of ran with that and there were discussion back and forth. But, you know, there, there was phrases in terms of, you know, quote, unplugging grandma. And there was, you know, all this kind of sense in terms of, of you know, pretty sophisticated, um, you know, uh, arguments in terms of uh, being able to ration care. You heard all kinds of things. And the problem is that the uh, Affordable Care Act is... Were we guessing over a thousand pages, you know, of like of that. wonderful, you know, uh, legalese that has yet to been fully implemented? So, 
there's lots of room for people to have misunderstandings and to not be completely sure about what what it is that was um, intended to do. The people that were drafting the legislation were really clear, however. What they wanted to be able to do is to say that the way we currently deliver care, and I think any of you, has anyone here been to a hospital ever? <laughs> yep. Walked by, okay. right? Almost every hand. Um, so, you know, we know that the healthcare system in America is broken as to whether it's irreparably broken or not, we're not sure, but it clearly is in need of some, um, some fixing. And so people with duct tape have gotten together and have tried to see what they could do. And one of the things is that we currently uh, give uh, reimbursement to physicians for doing stuff. And so that encourages people to do stuff. And some of that stuff is fabulous and great, and that's why we go. But some of that stuff might not be in our best interest, and that's part of the conversations that we're having. So the challenge is we're asking the physician to have a conversation where they were not being reimbursed for the conversation about then not doing the stuff that would be reimbursable. So exactly. on some level, exactly. there's, a, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of folks have said, ultimately, that's really what healthcare reform needs to look at. Not healthcare insurance reform, but real healthcare reform. Um, political announcement the here. Fee-for-service Well, thinking about that just differently, or? right, that, okay. that we want to have our incentives aligned so that reimbursement and incentives make sense in the way that would, again, be um, what most people go to care for. And so, you know, again, that's going to lead to all manner of discussion and all manner of different fallout, and we don't know what it's going to look like. We're trying to invent something here. But at the end of the day, um, being able to have a conversation with your physician perhaps is something that could be reimbursable. And whether it's about, quote, end of life or death, or whether it's about decision making and, and uh, you know, wh who are the family members that, you know, would make decisions on your behalf if you weren't able to, um, you know, I'm not sure how that, again, ultimately is going to play itself out. But there's definitely a need for the way we reimburse care and the way we want care to be delivered to be aligned differently. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. We're sending you to Washington. Thank you. <laughs> Um, Lisa, maybe if I could just yeah, add to that please. a little bit, just to reinforce. So initially that term came up because of the provision in the Affordable Care Act that would pay physicians specifically to talk to you about your choices about advanced care planning to give you the ability to control your care. It's very ironic that it was turned into being the exact opposite of what it was. It was stripped out. It was put into regulation. It was stripped out. It is a hot button for our federal government. So it will not show up in legislation or regulation or anything official from the federal government that that's part of health care reform. Now, the parties who are opposing this, the Republican Party who are opposing health care reform, have now said death panels is still in there. And now they're saying it's a provision mm -hmm. in the law that creates a third body that's going to have some input about reimbursement reform, if I understand it correctly. So the, the rhetoric about death panels is still going to be in there, just so you know um, what they're referring to. But um, there are ways that physicians can get reimbursed for having more extensive conversations, but it really helps when there's a specific billing code that they can use for this kind of conversation. So it's a shame that we lost that. But at the same time, a lot of the way that healthcare reform is played out is going to depend on our healthcare providers. And here in the uh, Los Angeles area, we really have some great leaders and um, industry thinkers. And I feel like in California, we're going to be able to achieve a lot of improvement in advanced care planning and palliative care through that process as a practical matter of how it's um, played out. We're not going to need our uh, political, our politicians telling us what to do. Because there'll be medical groups and associations? That, yeah, the, some of the concepts of healthcare yeah. reform and, are that they want different healthcare entities to work together to manage an episode of care. So instead of the hospital just doing its thing and discharging you, they're going to get penalized if they discharge you without the support you need and you end up coming back in 30 days for that same condition. They'll get penalized. So now they care about, does the nursing home know what to do? Does the nursing home have enough staff? Does the nursing home have the information? And there's things such as that are, that are in healthcare reform that will help us. Okay, thank you. Ken, how much does money drive all of this? I mean, do doc... Yes, doctors are paid for the cardiac surgery and the, the big ticket items, um, but how much of a driver is that? I, well, I think it's a huge driver in the, in the aggregate. Um, I, 
I believe in my soul that most physicians are are not fundamentally driven by um, money in in the provision of care in individual situations. Um, I mean, I think they look at money like anybody else does in a business, but I think when, when we hear about the 88-year-old getting a colonoscopy or the you know, 90-year-old with heart valve replacements, and that... There's, there's, there's stuff that I find bothersome, uh -huh. um, but unfortunately, it's hard to look at, it's hard to hear that stuff and make a judgment without knowing what's going on, because there are people who are elderly who are, who are very vital mm -hmm. and are living very active lives, and it's real easy to uh, paint people just because of their age as being over the hill, and we, we don't do that in America. We don't tend to do that, and I, and I don't think we should. Um, so I think we need to look at the individual. But that having been said, I think there's no doubt that um, we have some people who do inappropriate things. Uh, and, uh, and, there, and there probably are people who are uh, driven by uh, base motives to do it. Um, but I, I just don't get the sense, and it's just not what I've seen in practicing, that that's a um, large percentage of what's going on out there. Okay. So the problem isn't necessarily the financial structure. The fault is not with the doctors necessarily. The fault's not with the fa families, but together, combined. Um, I, I think it all how adds things up. go way off the tracks. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I think it all okay. adds up, and, right. and there, there are it's, issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, the physicians, I mean, they don't get off the hook here. Mm -hmm. um, I think, for example, uh, we have a huge communication problem. Uh, I think, uh, by and large, physicians are, are um, not great communicators. We get caught up it's in jargon. It's hard to find them at the hospital, <laughs> you know, frankly. That, yeah. and, and just being able to, to converse with them can be difficult. Um, so, um, but the jargon becomes almost insurmountable. Uh, I mean, I, I listen to the radio, I listen to physicians all the time being interviewed for something. It drives me nuts when they start lapsing into medical jargon. Uh, I know what they mean. I know that most people have no clue what they're saying. Um, but I'm sure that's how they talk to patients too. And, um, and it just creates a great misunderstanding. I think if, if we were going to use an example here with that, um, we've used here, we've talked about CPR, and car, you know, but we haven't really defined that term very much ourselves. So perhaps that would be helpful if you'd help our audience know. Chest compressions and... Give us some statistics. Um, how, you know, well, uh, of how effective CPR is. Right. There was a great study done in 2010 um, 95,000 plus patients. It was um, everybody who got CPR in Japan, where they have a very advanced medical system uh, outside of hospitals. And uh, in, in that entire group of patients, 95,000 patients, 3% um, had what you would, they defined as a good outcome. 3% ended up in a chronic vegetative state. 2% ended up in some lesser state. So at, at, at the end of the study, 8% of people were alive. Everybody else was dead. Wow. Those are, that, that's the outcome for CPR. Okay. Um, and yeah. um, Thank you. now in contrast, mm -hmm. in contrast, I keep referring to television, mm -hmm. somebody, Susan DM did a great study um, 10 or more years ago, and she looked at every television program for a year and looked at the portrayal of CPR. And what she found was a 75% success rate. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, and they're out on the tennis court the next day. Yeah. 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 And then, this, and this yeah. is sixty-five percent people well, walked you. out of the hospital. Right. So uh, there's this discordance between yeah. what actually happens and what what mm -hmm. uh, people think is going to happen. Well, we really cherish the fact that you're trying to educate people. I mean, all of you are doing a tremendous job. I I worry that there's a train wreck headed from society's perspective. If you look at the cost of care and how much is spent at the end of life, and I think 
the more the role models that you all are offering is, is fabulous. And thank you very much. So uh, we have time for questions and answers, and I'm sure there's some great questions. What do you think the role will be um, in the state of California for the laws that they have in Washington, Oregon, and Wisconsin for end of life? I think that we actually are way ahead of the curve of a lot of the other states in what's going on. And I think actually a lot of what's happening in Washington is actually replicating what we're doing in California. So I think what we're going to see is not going to be tremendously affected by, by what happens in Washington. For those of us who haven't been paying close enough attention, fill us in um, of what's going on in Washington and what is the status of, of end-of-life um, well, I, 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 I am, I'm here. speaking really more okay. of the Affordable Care Act is everything in Washington okay. now. Okay. And, uh, and so the Supreme Court decision is, is really, um, th this is changing everything mm -hmm. in, uh, in reimbursement in health care and everybody is really kind I'm of wondering what's going to happen. I thought you might be referring to aid in dying, but no, this was health care reform. No, I think he was death. talking about, about uh, uh, death and dying, but I think that uh -huh. what we're doing here in this uh -huh. state is way ahead of what's happening in other states. And so the, um, the things that are going to be facilitated through the ACA, we're already doing. Mm -hmm. Is that clear? No. We have a very active uh, program with with getting pulsed uh, mm -hmm. out there, uh, notifying people about that, hospice mm -hmm. programs, palliative care programs. Um, this is a real active thing that's happening in so California. So what I hear you saying, if someone's interested in aid and dying to seek palliative care or hospice as an alternative, and, there are and far that physician-assisted suicide is not on the table. That's not what I'm California. talking about. Okay. Um, but if they're mm -hmm. talking about a hospice, they're far more likely to be able to find those alternatives in this state than they are in, the, in, in these other states. They are way behind the mm -hmm. curve uh, uh, in terms of what's happening mm -hmm. in, in what I've seen. What is the role of liability insurance uh, that causes a dissonance between do what I do or not do what I say, or the opposite, do what I say, don't do what I do, between the physician and the patient? And how does it affect the default factor that you have uh, mentioned before? I think liability insurance has some impact, um, I think, uh, or just liability in general, the concern of liability if you're not doing uh, what people perceive you ought to be doing. Um, I'm not sure that I completely buy that it's a huge factor. Um, I hear it discussed, but I, I'm just not sure that I, I really buy that that's really a huge factor. Those statistics for those terrible outcomes with CPR, but is that for everybody that gets CPR, or people over a certain age, or people who get CPR due to a uh, chronic condition? Or what about people who get CPR after an accident, traffic accident? That was everybody who got CPR in 2010 in Japan, outside of a hospital. That's all comers. Statistically, the main difference is whether it's a witnessed arrest or unwitnessed. If you're in a hospital and you got a team that responds like that, the odds are better. If you're anywhere else, the odds are like what Dr. Murray shared with us. But you should understand that um, what we're doing uh, with CPR is we are buying time until we can shock the heart and restart it. Um, and what that, what that means is you have to have what we call a shockable rhythm. Only 25% of people whose hearts have stopped have a shockable rhythm. 75% of people don't. So you are going to fail 75% of the time before you even start. You, you, you will not succeed 75% of the time in the perfect situation. So only 25% of the time is it even possible to succeed. Now if you add in time factors, that just makes it worse. Given what doctors know about what happens to organ donors, do doctors donate their organs? Well, well I think all do organ donors die <laughs> uh, eventually. 
like all the rest of us. Um, I think there's a, uh, I haven't seen a specific study on that. I saw it as part of something else, and I think there was a, a reasonably high rate of uh, owner, owner, owner uh, organ donation, but I don't have numbers. When my doctor comes in with a student, um, my sense of things is the students haven't a foggy clue about how to do this kind of a discussion. And they're not getting the, the answers that they need to be able to do it. How do we get that to them? Is it taught in medical school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely it is. But you gain experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, you gain experience with every patient that you see. And, um, and this accumulates over time. A medical student has basically no experience. Uh, they are accumulating experience. And before they are actually going to be out there practicing, they're going to be spending um, four years in medical school, um, probably seven years, uh, pardon me, three, another three years in residency. Uh, so seven years of, of uh, experience that they're, they're going to be gaining before they're going to be in the decision-making uh, situation. Uh, but there is, there's no doubt that... Um, uh, physicians who are, are senior have more experience and I think junior physicians tend to look to senior physicians for that experience. Um, that's probably true in most professions. If I may, another um, benefit of palliative care is that there's now board certified fellows um, available in that field and that particular specialty offers physicians um, expertise in regard to how to have these very difficult and very complex uh, discussions. So the, again, the good news, if you are in a situation like this and if you have the opportunity to request a palliative care consult for you or your loved one, you have then a much higher probability of having someone who is intentfully trained for this and who has a more uh, nuanced and more sophisticated approach and has really spent some quality time um, practicing that that art because it really is an art to have a conversation um, that is culturally nuanced and, and uh, you know specific to what this particular patient and family needs are at this very particular time. Dr. Murray, you said that there was a laundry list of end of life procedures that um, generally have a low probability of success. Other than CPR, what are some of the most common end of life procedures that are generally unnecessary or have a low probability of success? Uh, putting people on ventilators, doing dialysis, uh, putting in feeding tubes um, would, would be just a few that frequently come up. Um, that uh, you're buying minuscule amounts of time in most cases and, and they're often used, we, we often will describe it as uh, we are, we're not prolonging life, we're prolonging death through the use of these techniques. Noticed in some doctors that death is the enemy and we're fighting death and, and death is something to be conquered in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a little more involved than just the patients. And, and, but, sure. and we want our doctors to be like that, frankly. You know, I mean, the, um, there's, they save our lives. But those really nuanced judgment calls get are tough. So. It's interesting yeah. now in the in the field, the different organizations have been challenged to look at the care that they do and, and to identify procedural activities that might not be beneficial. So, for example, the um, ASCO organization, which uh, many of the oncologists are going to be uh, um, participating in, has just listed the five strategies that they think are probably not necessary or are unlikely to be necessary. And then they have uh, now... Um, community education that is uh, outrolling from, from each of these organizations to alert you in the community to ask your physician, should you um, have this particular test if it's offered? Um, so there is, a, again, a, an attempt made by the various um, and sundry uh, organizations to try and address that so that, that this conversation again occurs. But that's a, a really important conversation for you to have with any um, 
strategy that's offered. You know, is this intervention um, ultimately, what is it that we're hoping to achieve by that? Being able to really feel like you understand and asking what the other alternatives are to that. You know, I've been um, in some of those family meetings that I was mentioning that I think are so important. And I know that sometimes we, we talk all kinds of things about what we might do, but we don't ever, um, or we don't often, talk about what if we didn't do any of those things. You know, so being able to say, doctor, if we didn't do these things, what would we likely see? That's an important question, one that, again, is unlikely to come up spontaneously unless we are very intentful in asking that. My name is Helene Raymond, and you have statistics on CPR. What about using AEDs? Uh, AED are uh, automatic external defibrillators. Um, and the, the concept is, as I mentioned, uh, what you are doing with CPR is you're buying time until you can shock the heart. And the problem has been um, getting that to happen. And um, we, we started off um, in transporting the patient to a hospital. Well, that was a waste of time because the time frame is, is short that you've got to get this done. Uh, if you don't get it done in that time frame, the heart has already died. And so you, you don't gain anything. So uh, carting people off the hospital, that, that didn't work. So then we started equipping uh, the paramedics with uh, the same defibrillators that we had in, um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the emergency rooms. And that really helped a lot. Um, and that boosted the numbers a bit, a few percent. Um, but then we had the problem that, well, the, the issue is the ambulance getting there. And that can take time. Here in Los Angeles during rush hour, just say goodbye. Um, and so, so what they realized were these, these uh, complex defibrillators that, that you needed a doctorate to be able to understand them and use them uh, were useless. So they created these uh, automatic external defibrillators that a layperson with some simple training uh, through the Red Cross um, can use. Uh, I don't know if this facility has one, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. A lot of public facilities do. Um, and they, uh, they actually uh, have, have a voice that talks to you, like Siri, uh, and gives you instructions on what to do. Uh, so you can actually um, put this on, and it will read whether a person has a shockable rhythm or not. And if it does, then has that boosted tells you to, effectiveness? It does. Okay. It does. Uh -huh. A percent or two. It, it's okay. not a huge percent, but it, it improves it a little bit. Um, but it's an improvement. And um, so uh, I, don't have, I don't have exact numbers uh, for that. But uh, it's not a huge improvement, but it has improved it a little bit. Is there any data or statistics or anything showing that doctors tend to choose fewer end-of-life, low-probability uh, uh, measures than the rest of the public, or isn't there? There's actually a, quite a bit of data. Um, uh, Zocalo Public Square was uh, nice enough to uh, publish a follow-up article uh, that I wrote uh, about a week ago in which I actually cited quite a bit of literature on, on this and several other issues uh, that I had talked about in the, in the original article. Um, and uh, one of the, one of the um, ones that I um, talked about that I cited uh, and gave the references for uh, really looked at it in great depth um, and, um, and cited very specific numbers uh, of, of what physicians would choose uh, when they, in fact, uh, have set up their advanced directives and the contrast in, in uh, comparison to what the public does. And there's a huge difference. Um, just uh, in the example, for example, of um, a person who is in the situation of a chronic coma, would physicians want CPR? 90% say no. But 25% um, uh, of the public says no. The rest say yes. There's a huge difference. 
90% do not want to be placed on a ventilator for artificial respiration. 90% do not want dialysis. Um, the numbers for the public are more like 10%. So there's a huge discrepancy. And there's actually quite a bit of literature that, that looks at this, yes. Question I might right? interject, I think a real educational effort on the medical community's part to describe what these interventions are and what's involved and what the odds are would help enormously. Yeah, and, and I agree. May, maybe. That is something the coalition's working on. We Great. do have materials on CPR and uh -huh. um, feeding tubes, artificial nutrition. We're developing ones on hydration and ventilation. And they do go into detail as to what the procedures are and what the research shows. A lot of people who are, um, a lot of lay people sometimes respond and they think that it's very negative, but that's honestly what the research shows is that exactly. they're not terribly effective. Right. And keep in mind that, again, that's why the family meeting is such a useful tool because, again, um, it's one thing to know in general about any of these things. It's another thing when it's really someone that you care about and you love under this particular set of circumstances, again, at this particular time. So being able to say, you know, help me understand what we really mean by this. And even though now, too, we've said chest compressions, but in terms of what that really looks like, what that's going to be like, you know, what the, again, the odds are for, you know, the likelihood under this condition, you know, that's, I think, the most useful. You know, if I could just jump in with one, questions. one more thing on this topic, it's reminding me that as POLST um, became effective in law in 2009, and we have a very robust conversation among our healthcare community and physicians about what everything related to POLST, and it's become very clear that what is a code varies from physician and hospital to hospital to physician. Usually a code means, do you want to be resuscitated? And so one of the things that we've been promoting is that CPR is not just the chest compressions, but it's the entire process, which is likely means you're going to need to be intubated and put on a ventilator and end up in the ICU. So if you're choosing CPR, you should be choosing that you're willing to go through the entire process because once that process starts, providers don't know where to, start, to stop. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about palliative care certification. And I think that's great, and I think there's some legislation, but do you ever think there'll be enough palliative care experts to take care of um, the current people and the aging baby boomers? Because in geriatric medicine, um, which is a field that came before palliative care, most of them are in academic medical centers. So how do we see culture change in education? All of us are getting older very rapidly. And as we do that, um, un we have another unfortunate point, which is there's not nearly enough people going into any of the healthcare fields at this time. So we have a shortage of doctors that's well documented. There's a shortage of medical social workers. I know you guys are all sad about that, me too. Um, there's a shortage of nurses. You know, you can take almost any of the, the um, direct clinical professions that we don't have a replacement rate. So we have more people that are getting older and more people who are going to need this care and less people to provide it. So it's a huge need. I look around here and I think, you know, could you become a nurse, please? We need that. Um, you know, anything we can do to get you to uh, consider that would be important. And as you say, then that invites us to think differently about how care is done. Um, one of my favorite phrases is, of course, um, physician extenders. Um, you can think about that all you want for tonight. But, you know, one of the challenges is, are there ways that we can have other people perhaps um, do this work um, so that we can all be stretched more, um, more effectively and more appropriately to be where we need to be? Again, as we talked about, it's too much, too much of the time now. It's still acute care. Um, and we need it to be in the outpatient area. We need it to be in the communities, the nursing homes. You know, we need to be able to have care where people really are. Exactly. So um, there is, again, um, a very bias here, I guess, for myself. But again, that's part of the reason we talk about health care reform in that broader sense. We need to be sure that we're getting people's needs met. I wanted to ask about the 50 to 70 million people in the country who don't have health insurance maybe 30 million will have in 2014, but I wanted the panel to just explain to us what is, what, how is the access to palliative care and life planning for those folks? Because we know that they don't, they have a hard time accessing um, a relationship over time with a doctor, which is the cornerstone of apparently of end of life planning. We are facing a huge uh, shortage, as, as Shirley mentioned, of uh, even primary care physicians in general um, is, uh, is a big challenge.
And um, now I, I will say one provision of the um, Affordable Care Act recognizes that uh, primary care is a critical part of our infrastructure uh, that has really been um, getting the, the short end of the stick for quite some time. And uh, there are things in there that should improve that somewhat. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I think we have seen a lot of medical students choose not to go into primary care, which is, I think has been a, a, a real, real big problem. Um, so reversing that is going to be part of it. Um, if I, could I just jump in? Do the uninsured have access to palliative care and hospice? And do, maybe this gets to your issue also, does insurance status influence the type of end-of-life care one gets? Yeah. Really? <laughs> well, in the hospital, because... In the hospital, people get care. Um, they're mandated by law to get care. Um, and, um, you know, their services will, will, in essence, be provided one way or another. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that when you transition to the outpatient side, that is completely different. And uh, people who do not have insurance are, are really, uh, they, they are, do not have access uh, to a large degree. And that has been a huge problem. The good news on the hospital side is that through the California Healthcare Foundation, they provided funding for every public hospital in the state to have a palliative care program. So if you go to a public hospital, you can know that they do have a palliative care program and you can get a consult. But um, it doesn't address the outpatient. And as we were talking about um, prior to um, the presentation tonight, it also influences, tends to influence the decisions that people make as well. Um, statistically, people who have not received good health care throughout their life do tend to choose more life-sustaining measures. Um, the uninsured also tend to That's be... That's counterintuitive. <laughs> What's that about, do you think? I don't know, Shirley, do you have thoughts uh -huh. on it? I do. I think, again, if, if we felt, you know, if I didn't have insurance, mm -hmm. um, let's say that I, had, I was a, a, working, a member of the working poor and I had a child who had uh, leukemia and felt that, um, that there was a delay in diagnosis and that there were challenges in being able to get and obtain chemotherapy and to establish uh, you know, care in a clinic and you know, seeing 15 different doctors and not having that continuity and not having that sense of relationship and, and rapport. And then at some point my child becomes so sick that I come to a hospital where, as you say, care is mandated. And so the child suddenly is getting care and someone comes up to me and says, you know, we're thinking about discontinuing life support. It might seem at that point that you're doing that because I didn't have insurance. You're not doing that necessarily then from my, my guesstimate might be that you're doing that again in a differential way because of the color of my skin or the, back, the background that I have. So again, I think that, that there are lots of layers to all of this. It's a very nuanced situation. But I do think that um, access to care is one of the, the very fundamental questions that we as a country do need to spend some time uh, dialoguing about. And I appreciate very much you bringing that question up. As a social worker, we want you to know, for throwing this public announcement, um, that we uh, are often are people that can help with resource allocation. So again, uh, that's another question to ask. When you go into care, um, is there a social worker available? Can that person help me to get the medications that I might need to help me to, to uh, qualify for Medi-Cal or to you know, access other kinds of insurance to be able to navigate through that system? So we can hopefully be of some concrete assistance as well as the um, you know, psychosocial, spiritual issues that might come with this as well. But a really important question, and thank you for raising it. Thank you. Look forward to thank meeting you so all much. of we'll you. We'll see you upstairs. <laughs>